1: Welcome to episode 558 with my guest, Alachi Tiffany Ito. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. Uh, I am not a therapist. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, the website for this show is metalpod.com metalpod, also the social media handle you can uh, follow us at. I was... Uh, at one of my support group meetings this this week, and uh, the, the t- topics are always related to intimacy in one way or another, and self-care and authenticity and the things that get in the way of that. And we were talking about confusion, and I thought, wow, that is such a great topic because a lot of times, we don't even know that we're confused. We're, we're seeking out some type of truth that seems inaccessible to us and instead of going, wow, I'm confused, we just think, well, I'm an idiot because I, I can't figure this out or I keep doing the same thing over and over again and then comparing ourselves to other people. and. Somebody brought up the topic of cognitive dissonance, which is a lot of times if you're being gaslit by somebody, that's what you experience. And this friend of mine was was sharing about um, telling this guy that she had feelings for him because they had been flirty. And he reacted as if he had never been flirty with her. Uh, And... She knew deep down in her bones, yes, he had been, maybe he wasn't aware of it, but at first she was really confused, and then she she was like no i'm I'm not <laughs> I know I'm not making this up. She said this to herself, and the the situation in her mind was resolved rather than just taking whatever somebody else says at face value, and I think. I think cognitive dissonance is especially prevalent when we're in a relationship and we don't know if it's a good relationship or not. You know, especially if we're attracted to somebody who's not really there for us or they're not consistently there for us and they're kind of, you know, somebody that's hard to read or whose attention is hard to get. They're kind of distant, and we fall under this false belief that they have some kind of secret about life or our relationship that they're not telling us, and we think it has to do with how we could be more attractive or more interesting, when in reality, they're just busy thinking about themselves. Maybe they're even dissociating. When somebody doesn't seem impressed with us and we're attracted to that, we think they know more than us because they're unimpressed by life. We think they have a higher standard of what's good in life, and and we want in on that secret. When in reality, they're just probably as depressed and confused as we are. But why, why is it that we... We assign those qualities to them like they know and we're just trying to figure it out. But anyway, I don't know. I think confusion is a is a great topic or maybe it's not. I'm confused. Did you see what I did there? This is from the Love Survey filled out by Steven. He writes, on weekends, you get to see so many more people having a great time with their dogs. The other day, I witnessed a fleeting moment between a man and his dog. We were in our cars driving past each other. The big shaggy dog sitting in the passenger seat looked lovingly at the man. The man looked back, gave him a smile and a pat on the head, and then they were gone. It was so beautiful. It is beautiful. Thank you for that. This is from the struggle in the sentence survey filled out by a
0: woman who calls
1: herself pro-coma all the way. You know, don't be on the fence about comas. You're either all in or you're all out. About her depression, my soul has been disemboweled. About her anxiety, the past 30 minutes, I've been resting, uh, and I have most certainly determined that the rest of my life is wrecked. About her bulimia, I don't understand why people would not want to throw up to be thin. About her compulsive eating, food is the only comfort my lonely, bruised heart knows. About her anorexia. Being hungry means I will be less cruel to myself. About her skin picking. I need to scratch open my face in order to have one clear thought. About her codependency. I need you to spend every moment of every day making up for my lifetime of isolation and pain. About her PTSD. Sexual pleasure feels like I'm a body bag filled with nuclear waste. Wow, that is heavy. About being a sex crime victim, I'll never feel worthy of being called a victim. About living with an abuser, no matter how well I think I understand how sick you are, I will always want you to adore me like you never have. About our anger issues, anger makes me feel so strong like I could rip the world to shreds. Any comments to make the podcast better? Have another Paul Gets Interviewed episode. So much has changed since the last one. We love you, Paul. We want to hear from you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And thank you for your your survey. Um, you're really good at, at summing up your struggle in a sentence. Thank you for that. I don't know. I feel kind of uh, confused about whether or not to do another episode because it feels like I talk about myself a lot throughout the episodes so i don't know this is from the love survey filled out by crystal and she writes i love that feeling when my vibrator just got off the charger and that first jolt is extra jolty (laughs) i like that verb jolty Has anybody ever put something inside their body and not had the fleeting thought, oh my God, what if this gets stuck in there and I have to go to the ER? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey, filled out by Mon Santos, and he writes about his depression. I feel like my depression is similar to a corroded metal. No matter how hard I sand it and seal it and paint it, it will eventually catch up and eat me. Ooh, that is a good one. Yeah, there is. depression feels like a stalker, like just when you start feeling better. A little knock at the door. Hi, right, remember me? This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uncomfy and anxious. About his bipolar, he writes, today will be a good day when it's tomorrow. <laughs> uh, about his ADD, I'm supposed to be working right now. About his anxiety, it's like a game of of tug-of-war, except my hands have been slipping on the rope and burning for a decade. And about his OCD, what would happen if I drove into a house? I would say that Netflix would be paused. Thank you for that. Uh, Our sponsor for today, as always, is uh, BetterHelp.com, online counseling. And I got a really nice letter uh, or email from uh sarah joe and she writes uh i'm a female in my mid-30s from canada it's not easy finding a therapist with experience in emotional abuse so i'm really glad i found one her name is lauren and she's amazing it's such a relief not only to be treated for my anxiety and depression but that it doesn't stop there she understands as well as I do that those things stem from my mom's narcissistic abuse throughout my life, and it's nice not to have to explain that every time I talk to her. Uh, I had a dream last night. I dreamt I saw you and was excited to tell you that I started using Better Help, and that the therapist I was matched with has already helped me so much. I've never had a therapist or counselor with so much experience and understanding with narcissistic abuse. I've only been talking to her for maybe five weeks, and I can already feel my life changing. When I woke up, I laughed and thought, hey, I should email you about this so you can share in that joy, too. And that made me smile. Thank you for that. And so, uh, Gap, if you're interested in checking out betterhelp.com, go to betterhelp.com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And uh, they're licensed in all 50 states and I'm a a big fan of what they do and what they provide. Uh, And then finally, one more thing before we get to the interview with uh, Alachi. This was a struggle in a sentence filled out by a trans woman who calls herself, my antlers are shivs. (laughs) And uh, about her autism, she writes, my rule book for life got lost in the mail, and no one has lent me theirs. I'm here with Alachi Tiffany Ito, who is a mental health advocate. And you were um, judged criminally insane by a reason of insanity uh, right. because you were experiencing psychosis. Yes. Um, let, let's go to the moment uh, that got you in trouble.
0: So, I mean, I've been, you know, battling bipolar disorder since I was 19 years old um, at Boston University. Um, That was the first time I had symptoms of my illness. Um, Then at the time, it just manifested in the form of voices, um, but there were never any delusions, and there was never any moment where I was disconnected from reality, like we see in the event that Um, brought me to the court system in Chicago. Um, I was maintaining my illness but also going to college and trying my best to put on that I'm normal face that a lot of us Mm -hmm. who have mental health disorders really try to don but when you spend all of your time pretending to be something that you're not, it can be taxing and even make your symptoms worse.
1: So was it auditory hallucinations in general? Uh, was it the you know, specifically the sound of a human voice talking to you?
0: Yes. So all of um, the above, all of the above. So the voices that I heard were personal. There were people that I knew, friends and family, and people that I didn't know. Um, and it was really intense to have that at such a young age, at such like, a right moment when you're trying to build that next segue into adult life. Um, and start to have those auditory hallucinations. Um, I remember I got on the train, the Amtrak from Boston to Baltimore, where I grew up, um, and immediately sought help with the psychiatrist. Um, and I know a lot of people who have mental illnesses can relate to getting different diagnoses, you know, and just going through those waves of trying to find someone who can actually understand how you're feeling or or what you're experiencing, which is hard to do when so many doctors haven't personally been through that. Yeah. Um, I found that you had doctors that were so ready to label me as schizophrenic and mm. other doctors that didn't know what to really say, but you know, ultimately I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, NOS. Um,
1: not, not otherwise specified. Right. Yeah.
0: Um and and that at that point I didn't have delusions like we saw um at what happened at O'Hare Airport. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's why I had that NOS like it was just kind of budding um at the time.
1: And it it's not typical that uh, bipolar includes Psychosis, but it's not—it's not uncommon. Was there? Were right. you experiencing mania at the time? Because from what I understand, mania can often accompany uh, the hallucinations.
0: Yes, I did experience that. At which time? At when I first was sick, or at O'Hare?
1: Just in general.
0: Yeah. So mania definitely is my most prominent symptom. I would say um just that hyperactivity like the hyperverbalism um and then ultimately that psychosis piece that came into clay later on um i i really thought that i could carry on as you know a person who didn't have illness or mimic that in some sort of way um, and I went through college, I graduated cum laude, still hearing voices as I walked the stage to accept my diploma. Um, it was terrifying, you know, to hear voices, I would go out into public or go to a grocery store, and just hear the voices of people I didn't even know. And it had this um, overall, like, tie of like telepathy being the issue and that I can hear other people's thoughts and they could hear mine. So that was like the paranoia piece of it as well. So um, you th- you and-
1: thought that, that there was a a special gift rather than this being uh your your brain right. hallucinating. Yes. What are some of the things that you would hear and whose voice would be saying them to you?
0: So, the common theme was that I was a telepath and that most people in the world were. And so, because I was coming into age or coming of age, I needed to learn that gift and get comfortable with that gift and ultimately be comfortable with hearing other people's thoughts and them hearing my own. That was like the major theme of it. Um, and, you know, the voices would kind of tell me that. I was really bad at being a telepath. Right. Because (laughs) I was really bad at it. I just all you have to do is sleep on your left side and you'll wake up a telepath. That was, you know, what they would tell me. I slept on my left side for months and months and months. And I never awoke, you know, with that gift that they were promising me or with, you know, this tell it was almost like, They made it seem like telepathy was so common, like as common as, you know, um, a a high school diploma, you know, and that I needed to have telepathy to be able to compete in the world. That was the theme.
1: Did you believe that people could hear your thoughts, just people within your physical vicinity or people everywhere?
0: People everywhere, worldwide. And Uh, was that terrifying? Because
1: a lot of times we think thoughts that are, you know, it's our brain, either it's thinking something dirty or violent or what were what were some of the thoughts that you were like, oh, my God, people know that I just thought that.
0: Well, the one thing that I would think is like people know I'm a bad telepath and I don't have a hold on it like I'm supposed to like the voices told me I was supposed to have, you know, so they often told me, you know, you don't have to think anymore So I spent all my time trying not to think as if that was possible, because that's what they told me the whole like power of telepathy and coming into this, like this level of being would be about.
1: Wow. That is so intense.
0: (laughs) And college,
1: (laughs) college on top of that. Right. Yes. I
0: remember there was this guy I had a specific crush on at Boston university and, you know, you know, when you have a crush on someone, they float through your head every now yeah. and then. Right. Mm-hmm. And the frequency of it was like, you know, the voices would mock me like, oh, there he is again. You know, the kind of situation. <laughs> so it, there were moments where I was just like, wow, my mind is just not my own. Right. Yeah. So and, and now I have to share my mind with thousands of people.
1: So describe that day. Uh, at O'Hare airport in Chicago.
0: Right. So, um, I graduated from college and when I graduated, I thought that I wanted to become a psychiatrist, um, because I felt like I could help other people because of my experience or because I actually had a mental health disorder that maybe I can inform treatments or just be some sort of, you know, connector between patients and, and their experience. Um, so I moved out to Chicago to, you know, get a post-baccalaureate in pre-medical sciences. Um, it ended up not working out. So I went on to move for to work for a technology company. Um, I was there for about a year and it was really an intense company, a lot of intense sales bravado and metrics and you know, things that I didn't know, like were not good for my stress level and health. Um, And just one day, like I was trying to function, you know, at a high level and do the things that my peers did or my friends who didn't have illnesses did. And in a lot of ways, I treated my life as if I didn't have a mental health disorder. So one day um, I start to hear those voices again. And I start having intense delusions. Um, I wander the streets. I leave my work at the time. I'm walking around the streets of Chicago barefoot, having psychosis. And psychosis is something that we don't often center in the mental health conversation, right? And you know, so we use this ter- term "psychotic" when really it's to describe hallucinations and delusions, right? And we, so we tend to
1: think to, when we hear the word psychotic is somebody's violent.
0: Right, right. Um, but it's it's a medical term that has now become slander, you know, yeah. <laughs> a way to describe, you know, unbecoming people. And um, I, I wish that we could, and, you know, it was so interesting because Lady Gaga recently came out with the In the Me You Can't See and like admitted that she had her own like psychotic symptoms and that was like the first time I heard that word being used. Um
1: was there a comfort I, in that?
0: There was. Yeah. There was. Because I mean it can be as simple as like just being outside of your body or um you know it doesn't have to be the delusions and hallucinations. It's 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 so much more than that. And I think it's so broad, but we've just treated it as this negative word. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how we can come back from that. But
1: towards, towards the end of my drinking days, uh, I would hear when I would lay down to sleep at night, I would hear people in my backyard uh, calling, calling Right. Me. And I started to get... Um, Worried, And I applied for a, a gun license. I got a gun license. Wow. And I'm so glad that I didn't get one. But I thought that I needed to protect myself. And there were no yeah. hallucinations during the day. But when I would lay down to sleep, very drunk, I would right. uh, I would hear uh, Paul, Paul. Right. Yeah,
0: right. And and you are so absolutely blessed that it never snowballed yeah. into anything more because when I went to the hospital that would follow my incarceration, I met so many people with very similar stories to what you just described, where it actually, you know, ended with them in an act of violence or um harm against themselves which was more, most common but and,
1: and a um, lot of a lot of people in the uh towards hitting their bottom of you know cocaine or meth or crack tons of of hallucinations visual auditory right. paranoia yes. you know they they joke about you know hiding in the closet sure that the SWAT team is going to come in through you know the vents
0: right. absolutely
1: Sorry, I, I I got a sidetrack. So, uh so going back to that day at o, yeah. O'Hare.
0: So, um I was wandering the streets again in in psychosis and I was on Magnificent Mile. I was, you know, in Streeterville, Chicago. I don't know if you're familiar with I'm from um, Chicago. Oh, awesome. (laughs) Some days I really miss it. So I miss Portillo's and Giordano's. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. There's a Portillo's out here. I'm so, uh, so happy. Yeah.
0: Oh, nice. So, you know, I found myself on those streets. I wind up at O'Hare airport and during the time I was on the streets, my family like was trying to find me. And my mom, you know, knew because they all knew about my mental illness. That's something that I had never kept from them. Um, I was very honest with my family about the things that I went through. And, you know, we really did think that moving to Chicago would be great for me and would be a great experience for me to become that adult that I envisioned after college Um, and my mom, as I was wandering the streets, my mom flew to Chicago to find me and she called the Chicago police department and she filed missing persons reports. And she told them that I was out on the streets and that I could harm myself or someone else, but they ended up not coming to do a welfare check. And they said to my mom, because I was an adult, that you know there was nothing that they could do until something happened. And so it was hard as much as my family tried to prevent something from happening because of my illness. It just did not protect me from, you know, losing my reality at O'Hare airport. And so I find myself at O'Hare and I start hallucinating the sound of gunshots, Um, just loud, loud shots. It's pretty much what you envision it would be like to be caught in a mass shooting or wow. any kind of terrorist attack. And I remember just thinking, run, you know, get out of there. And that was my perception, right? So that was the reality I was living in, which was very disconnected from the actual one. And I see a child and his mother. And I say to myself, oh my gosh, like I need to help them get to their departure gate or get somewhere. Um, And there was an initial hesitance because like, as if like, I just wasn't so sure about, you know, how to help them. Mm -hmm. But I knew that if I didn't help them, they could die on my watch and it'd be the most selfish act that could ever transpire in a mass shooting. So, yeah, so... I'm hearing the gunshots and it feels like everyone's running around me. And I pick up the small child to help them get to their departure gate, thinking the mother was following me. I took several steps towards an escalator and she took the child back from me and it lasted maybe moments, you know, 20 seconds, but that act alone resulted in a charge of aggravated kidnapping.
1: I have a friend who the exact same thing happened to. She, she picked up a child. She was having hallucinations and she picked up a child and it was very briefly. And she spent several years in and out of jails, um, but was found, uh, you know, insane by, or, you know, uh, right. Not guilty by reason of insanity. Yes. Um, So, what happened after that,
0: so after that, like I'm in a period of like rolling blackouts, so I remember being in a cell, I remember being booked, but I was never taken to like a psychiatrist or any community you know mental health agency. Um, do you think this,
1: do you think being a woman of color factored into that?
0: absolutely, especially because it it's not like no one was trying to help me, you know, like my whole family was trying to intervene with this system, this criminal justice system machine that took over, you know, members of my family called the state's attorney's office, let them know, like, she's not a criminal, she has no criminal history. Um, She was working as a professional, you know, she's not, this is not what you think it is. And it was so easy for them to verify the mental illness. But at that point, you know, they set my bail at $450,000 and no one would listen to my family when they tried to intervene for me.
1: I I can't imagine what that was like, obviously on you, but on them as well. What a helpless, frustrating, terrifying Experience right. that must have been for them, and then you know, the whole layer of institutional racism, yes, on, on top of that,
0: that, that, right, this was you know, an act of less than 30 seconds, and you know, I'm still today connected to this criminal justice system, you know, so, and this was 2014 when it happened.
1: So, when did you begin to get some clarity on what happened and begin to find the the path to managing your illness? Right. Uh, right. Talk about your stay in the uh, in the mental hair, mental health, <laughs>
0: mental health <laughs> system? Yeah, so I was in you know the Cook County Jail for about a year. Um, during that time, I was still hallucinating on end different things. I, you know, thought I was going to be God's wife. And again, this was very new to me to have this level of of psychosis because like of all the many years that I was functioning with the illness, it was never a situation where I like, didn't even know my name. Right. right. And so after a year, we go to trial where I'm found not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, and then I was sent to a hospital, which was a state hospital outside of Chicago. Um, and I would not say that that was the best place for recovery, but it was achieved, you know, mm-hmm. regardless. Um, I was able to be placed on a medication that has worked so well for me right now. And I know a lot of people have their own issues with medication and whether or not to take it, but this medication really saved my life and has put me on a path to stability that I now have today.
1: Give us some snapshots from your stay.
0: So this hospital was really embattled in its own, drama and scandal. Um, which which, were, ho-
1: which hospital was it? Or are you not I comfortable saying?
0: If, I don't know if I should say. Okay, that's okay.
1: You can tell me after we get off microphone. Uh,
0: okay, that's microphone. fine. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and, and when you Google them, when I tell you, um, you'll find stories of this place, just haunted stories of what it was like to be there. There was a patient who was made a sex slave for the three years that he was at that hospital. Um, It was not uncommon to be there
1: for by the staff,
0: by the staff. Yes. Um, It was not uncommon to be there for 10 years or more. Um, You found that once you got to that hospital, Things were no longer about whether or not you were sane, right? So you recover while you're there. That's their main goal and priority. And after that, it's punishment, right? So, and and that Mm -hmm. comes in the form of time, which is like what I advocate for now is to separate this criminalization of people who have mental health disorders because we would not do this to someone with Alzheimer's. Right. Right. So it wouldn't be, and this is very much a brain disorder. So it wouldn't be that you recover from your illness, but then you're unable to, to leave because, you know, the staff members don't like your personality. So because they don't like you, they write damning things in your chart or tell the psychiatrist things that you do, which, may need or beget more medication or beget more confinement, right? Um, So, unfortunately, this wasn't like the club med that I had envisioned when I (laughs) was trying to, you know, recover. And it was not a place where you would be discharged because you were ready to leave, you know, or discharged because you had healed. Um, In in what sense? Discharge was just not a part of its like central nervous system. You had to push and fight with your family, with a lawyer to get them to take your discharge seriously. So many of the doctors here, and there have been reports on this published reports about the state hospital system of NGRI or not guilty reason insanity. They believe that because you were at that hospital the judge had sent you there as a form of punishment rather than recovery. Um, so often you had people staying longer than if they had just gone to prison in the first place um, because you were under this kind of never ending treatment plan where you were only allowed to leave if you were found not a danger to yourself or others, but the proof to, to find someone not a danger to themselves or others was completely subjective and based on opinion you know Mm -hmm. of a doctor so there was no real firm end date to your stay there it could just be prolonged and prolonged Um, a lot of judges some of the judges actually do believe in recovery and believe that you were sent there to recover it really just changed based on who you were talking to you know and so this was like, we didn't wear uniforms. We wore our own clothes. Like we got takeout on the weekends. We played softball. You know, it was very much a hospital that functioned under the guise of recovery, but it had its darker sides that it just couldn't suppress.
1: Talk, talk some more about the, those darker sides if you can.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there were patients there I mean, we were all basically treated as one. So we know mental health disorders have a wide variety of demographics, um, how they present or manifest in each other. We all had a wide range of charges. Um, You had people who were there for 13 years who had this one man was there for 13 years and he was there because he broke into a church while he was homeless so he was just there and if no one was pushing for your release they would often just forget about you 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 would fade into the background and maybe they would move you to a new unit right and Mm -hmm. once they moved you to a new unit you had a new doctor and a new treatment plan and they could start you over at day one
1: and had he kind of given up
0: absolutely and the longer people were there, the more they thought of the hospital as, some, as just like the last stop for them. And many people gave up the pursuit of that conditional release, which was discharge, how they discharged you into the community. And the longer you were there, the more detached from the outside world and society you became until it got to a point where you feared leaving the hospital.
1: I would imagine, too, with technology changing so quickly, year by year in the outside world. Uh, I was uh, part of a a panel speaking at a prison uh, one time, Mm
0: -hmm. and this
1: guy who was probably 25 years old said, I I, I don't want to get out. I, I know how things work in here. Yes,
0: yes. So imagine for the man who I mentioned, who had maybe a history of, of housing and security. There were many people, like I will admit, found the hospital again, a sanctuary as a place where I can get a hot meal. I have washing facilities and I have a bed and that works for me, you know, and because, because there were people like that, the hospital was so confident um, in its place in society and they knew that people thought of of the people that came to the hospital in negative ways and wanted them to be excluded from society and they were kind of you know supported by that idea and um, in the work i do with nami chicago they are are fighting heavily to kind of remove that criminalization with the state hospital and with the courts and silo the experience of someone who has a mental illness away from that system, what we see today, which was just a cousin of imprisonment, right? So, you know, being at that hospital, you would have staff members hit on you, you would have staff members gaslight you, you would have you know, these doctors who didn't understand that you were not sent there for punishment. So because they were scared about their license or their, you know, you know, they wouldn't want to recommend your release. And so you could just waste away there for years.
1: Wow. So how did you finally get out?
0: So I was lucky because no, I was blessed because not many people had what I had, which was a loving family who would get on the phone and call administrators when things were going south. And I also had a lawyer at the time who tried his best to help the people in the hospital where I was. Um, you had, those were like the two main things. And also the that coupled with, having an education and being able to understand what was happening to me legally was essential Um, because if I just was there with no comprehension of the consequences or strategy or how to Mm -hmm. get out of that system or um, you know, what was actually going on on an emotional intelligence level as well. Um, between like the power balance of the staff and patients, it just you could find yourself just smothered by that place.
1: I think that, and I think there's a stigma too um, for the for the people unfortunate enough to not only be battling a mental illness but who are impoverished. I think there's this stigma that people think, well, if this person is poor. There's probably no hope for them because they have remained poor. They haven't. Right. They haven't. You know, "quote unquote" progressed in society. Right. So they are a hopeless case, and they are a, right. a, a danger to society. You know, we we marginalize their 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 value as a human being, and their
0: right. And I mean, you had patients there that were so afraid of the hospital's retaliation that they would not even call a lawyer because they were scared that if they found representation the hospital would make them stay even longer you know and I mean it's written in into mental health code in like the Illinois system that once you're ngRI that's a full acquittal and it cannot beget any negative consequences you can't even appeal ngri because it is and this has been decided in like the illinois supreme court and i believe the supreme court of the united states that being not guilty by reason of insanity is not a negative consequence and it is not punishment but unfortunately confinement for years and years and years was all the hospital knew how to do they would just so blindly ignore what was the law So in a lot of aspects or respects, this was like a violation of someone's constitutional rights.
1: So what changes would you like to see happen?
0: I would like to see that more community-based organizations in the city of Chicago and worldwide um, start to get involved in diversion programs from a criminal justice system, Um, someone, and of course, I know there are cases where it's like, wow, something terrible, like horrific happens because of someone's mental illness. But I think that everyone who has a mental illness deserves that benefit of the doubt and deserves, you know, to be assessed on a case by case basis, right? Um, Everyone should not be put in the same sandbox. and I think that the criminal justice system has been just such a de facto response for mental health disorders. It's just been a new and jerk addiction. reaction
1: and addiction, yes, and
0: addiction. Yeah. you know, and we need to again, silo those people into their own system um, that reflects their humanity um, that reflects their emotional and psychiatric needs Um, And that reflects what we know about mental health and mental illness today, which is, you know, quite progressive and much different than when these laws were written. So
1: how do do you feel today? What are your struggles, if any? Um, How's your relationship with your family? Uh...
0: Um, Yeah, so I was able to leave... Illinois which is like the best thing that ever happened I was able to leave because um, of a lawyer named Patrick Yingling at Reed Smith took interest in my case and he he thought it would be a good idea if I just went home but we knew that we were up against quite a bit we were up against the entire Illinois machine and what they say happens to you when you're not guilty by reason of insanity um I was blessed with a good judge who believed in that recovery mission and it could have been so easily the opposite. You know, people would tell stories of having judges that just would never even consider their case um, and just wanted them to stay at the state hospital for 25 years. Maybe they'd consider it after 30 years. (laughs) Um, And I was just lucky that that wasn't the case for me. And um, in the courtroom, the prosecutor will always be against you when you try to attain any kind of privileges or discharge from the hospital or discharge to your own, you know, independent living. And each time you try to ask for something like that, you hold a court hearing. And it's that just dramatic, you know, unveiling of your every mistake and you know truth and lies that you can't even you can't even control you know but um I was happy because you know we prevailed you know my family was there for me they got on the stand and said that you know they would take care of me and the judge agreed you know he agreed and he allowed me to move back to the east coast to live with my family my relationship with my family is amazing Um, they are so supportive of me even all this time you know from 2014 to 2019 I was at that hospital when I came out I was you know in this kind of respite period trying to get out of Illinois um I still was in a um a structured environment um which was tied to the criminal justice system because it all is. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I felt like I could feel the world against me. And I did not think that that judge was going to let me go home ever. And he did. And now I'm here and I'm trying to fight for other people who might be in my position and also unveil... This very arcane system that we don't discuss, like what happens when you're not guilty by reason of insanity. Most people think like, oh, you go home after that. It's an acquittal. But that's just not what happens. And oftentimes the consequence is way worse than if you had gone to prison.
1: And I think the thing that's that's difficult and really complicates it is some of the people, um, refuse to take meds, and that might be the only thing that keeps them in touch with yes. reality and keeps them right. safe from themselves and others. So it's so complicated. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad I don't have to be one of the people making a decision about someone's life and the right. safety of society and the safety of them and their right. potential as a, as a person.
0: Yes. Yes. Give, give and because a-, a lot of things can convolute that that decision, right? So every time you enter the courtroom, and you have the prosecution who's against you going anywhere, you know, even if you walk the straightest line, like I did, and you don't have any other criminal history or any other, you know, issue that or you're not, you've never been violent, and you've never been dangerous. um, And you don't have any kind of history that would say, equivocally, like, you're a danger to society, mm-hmm. they will still try and find that, right? Um, so when you go into an, in a hearing like that, the prosecution will find an expert to testify against you, you know, so you'll have a doctor there who says, well, you know, I'm not sure what will happen if we let her go to the next step, you know, and, and there's always that risk they'll say. And as long as you have a mental illness, there will always be some level of risk, right? There's no cure.
1: Give me a snapshot of being back with your family.
0: Um, Being back with my family has been great. Um, I get to interact with my nephews on a level that I didn't have while I was in the hospital um, ever since I've been out though, it has been the pandemic. <laughs> so oh it's been god. yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So I was, you know, this all happened in 2014. I get out in 2019, and then in a few months, COVID 19. Oh it's COVID-19. my god. Right. Oh my God. So I have not seen like full life since like 2013.
1: What does that feel like?
0: I mean it's almost it's almost weird coming out and there being a pandemic because i'm now used to the lockdown right like mm-hmm. that that separation from society or and that need to you know go insular and and look inward and find your own motivations and reason to make it day to day um i've gotten quite good at Finding stimulation and satisfaction from, you know, my own head or my own creativity or my own, you know, writing. Um, but unfortunately, of course, it's like I want to go out and and live the full life, and that's something that I haven't been able to see. But um, I have been able to spend a lot of time with my family and grow with them, and I think in a lot of ways when I came out, you know, there's ways that you're institutionalized that you'll never see. You'll never see it, but they will, you know, (laughs) and- and How, How do you mean? Well, you know, there's, you know, I can spend all day in my room and not come out, right? And so that's definitely like a product of the hospital and the regimentation and like the daily schedule. And and while I was at the hospital, my room was like my sanctuary and my shelter, and it shielded me from getting into any trouble like with the population there or the staff members there. And that was how I was able to achieve discharge, because I didn't interact. You know, if you interact and you say the wrong thing to a staff member, you know, they would so easily right in your chart, and your chart was used against you in a court of law. So if you had a tense conversation with a staff member who didn't like what you said or felt insulted by you and passive-aggressively, they wrote something in your chart, state prosecutors would bring it up at the hearing. Wow. So I stayed in my room. (laughs) You know, I didn't move. I just... I was in my room and I wrote everything I experienced and everything I felt. And my family would actually come to the hospital and smuggle out my notebooks, like the different descriptions that I would have while I was there.
1: Are, is there an, an intent to publish one day?
0: Yes, one day. I have written a book, yes. And I think that its its purpose is to show these pieces of society that are just completely overlooked um, and show the humanity of the people that I met there who were just never given the benefit of the doubt.
1: Do you find, in hindsight, there to be a spiritual component to what you've experienced and who you are today?
0: Yes. Talk there, there always about that. is. Talk about that. I, yeah, I think there's always a spiritual component because. I think confinement forces you to again, look inward and find out what your purpose is. You are, are given endless hours in a box that will be opened. And all you can do is find out what your higher power is, what motivates you, what inspires you, and what you're gonna do in the future to correct the mistakes that you made before. It is a forced introspection that, ma- that makes you make promises to yourself for the future, make promises to the people you've heard or the people that you love and want to see again. And that spiritual connection is what got me through to the end because I refused any other form of interaction than the one I had with my inner self.
1: There's a, a saying that religion is for people who are afraid of hell, and spirituality is for people who've been there.
0: Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't know, I don't know who said it, but I love it too.
0: That's genius. I
1: love it too. Yeah, our our bottom can be our gift uh, in in some ways, which is not to say you know it's good that it happened, but to me, so much of spirituality is centered in the belief that there is a positive within every negative and spirituality to me is the pursuit of that positive and to try to lead a disciplined life while on that path, but, you know, easier said than done.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Alachi, thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you so much for being such a great advocate and, uh, you know, what What a blessing uh, you are uh, for this struggle for rights.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank and you if, for the time.
1: And if people want to find you, where can they find you?
0: You can go onto to alachitiffany.com.
1: That's O-L- O-L-A. Okay, go ahead.
0: Oh, sorry. Yeah. O-L-A-C-H-I-T-I-F-F-A-N-Y.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at Elachi Tiffany.
1: And we'll put the links to all that stuff under the show notes for this episode.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Many, many thanks to her. I really enjoyed talking to her. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, "What." When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon
0: when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com
1: or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, before we dive into some surveys, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can support the podcast uh, financially. If you go to the website, you can uh, donate uh, one time or becoming a rec- become a recurring monthly donor, which really, really helps. Uh, you can do it through PayPal or uh, Patreon and uh, it's greatly appreciated, and we're always in in need of uh, more donors and monthly sponsors, so go check that out. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Anonymous, and she writes, I got a dog to try to relieve some bad anxiety I've been dealing with, and my past dog had been a real help with this. Anyway, I'm chasing my dog down the hall as she has a piece of shit hanging out of her mouth, and I think this is supposed to help with my stress. Oh, my God. That is just when you really believe, like, oh, my God, dogs are so much better than people. Here they come with a turd in their mouth. Like they found a diamond. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Supersonic Sax Condom. And they write, I love seeing birds that I don't often see. Last week when I was about to leave work, I was about to exit out the main door when a hummingbird flew up to the main door. Facing the door, it quickly flew to multiple spots in front of the door and then flew away. It made my day. My theory is that the hummingbird was looking at its reflection in the glass because when I exited the building, I looked back at the glass and noticed that I could clearly see my reflection. I get hummingbirds in my backyard, and I just I just love it. They're, they're just so amazing. So amazing. I feel so bad when I pull out the shotgun and turn them to dust. This is uh, Ask Paul Anything by Leonardo the Ninja Turtle. And he writes, What's your process for putting together the intro montage? Do you collect sound bites throughout the year or just do it all at once? Uh... I collect them throughout the year and then uh, sometime in December I'll panic and sit down and uh, spend a night putting it together. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Pat. He is uh, in his 30s, identifies as straight, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I had... A girl act out sex acts when I was five years old. Uh, I've been emotionally and physically abused. Stepfather and grandfather would beat me. Mother would emotionally abuse me and take away seeing family. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I don't speak to my mother anymore. My wife tried to have a relationship with her and was emotionally damaged from it. My stepfather and I are great friends now. My grandfather became very close before he died. Darkest Thoughts, that I hate women. I love women, but only want sex, but find them disgusting if it's not sexual. I rage and have to control myself through being alone in the outdoors. Darkest Secrets, he is uh, Hurt Animals. Uh, Sexual Fantasies, Most Powerful to You, Finding a Stranger and Hooking Up, or Sex in Public. Writing that makes me feel embarrassed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my mother she should have let my grandparents keep me, taking me from stability to chaos for selfish reasons, because I get over-emotional every time I try to confront her. What, if anything, do you wish for stability and to be happy just being me? Have you shared these things with others? No, I want to seem normal. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's nice to tell someone. The last time my psychologist tried to admit me, I just wanted to get my feels off my chest. Thank you for that. Man, it's so important to share what we're going through with other people. It sounds like you got a lot, a lot pushed down inside. I think it would really benefit you to find someone to open up to. But thank you for filling that, that out. Uh, this is filled out by uh, Israel Barney. And uh, he writes, Good day, my good friend. I am do- deeply sorry if I have in any manner disturbed your privacy. Please forgive this unusual manner of contacting you. Uh, it is unusual to do it through email. I'm, I'm used to getting it through Telegram. Or Pony Express, but you know, if this is how you want to do it, there is absolutely going to be a great doubt and distrust in your heart in respect of this email. That that is an understatement. I'd say there's even a little bit of hate, Israel. I don't know why I hate you. I've never met you. Maybe it's because you use email. There is no way for me to know whether I will be properly understood, but it is my duty to write and reach out to you as a person of transparency, honesty, and high caliber. I'll introduce myself once again. I am Mr. Israel Barney from Togo Republic. I am also the branch bank manager of Baya Togo Bank. I was also the account manager of my late client, Mrs. Stella, who might or might not be related to you. Oh she is. My legal name is Mr Stella. She traveled down to China on the twenty eighth of december twenty nineteen on a five weeks business trip. That's where she went. I lost tabs. I was keeping tabs on Mrs. Stella. And I look up on the twenty seventh of December, and she's gone. She flew back not knowing she had been infected with the deadly coronavirus. Well, when she came back, I didn't know that because I didn't talk to her. I refused to talk to her. She sadly passed away on March 20th, 2020. (laughs) On March 19th, I was like, where the fuck is she? Now I know. She left the sum of $3.2 million in our financial institute. And then a parentheses, bank. So that's what a financial institute is. That answers so many questions. She specifically confided in me, told me that, quote, no one else knows about her funds in our bank, that the funds was for a project before she had passed away while she was ill. And down here in our country at this present day, once anyone passes away after one year, if no relatives of the late customer doesn't come to claim the funds slash assets, it'll be recycled. That seems hasty. They just put it in the blue bin. It also needs to be reported to the central bank where the greedy government, is there any other type Israel, will then want to have their hands on the funds. That's when you come in. Since you bear the same surnames with her, I want you to stand as her next of kin since no one else knows about this funds in our bank besides me, and now me, and I don't think anyone will be coming for it. I promise you that if you agree to assist in claiming this funds from my bank, will not bridge the law in any way because I'll be your eyes and ears here in the bank. I appreciate that. And if you don't mind, could you be my feet in the bank? Because a lot of times just having your eyes and your ears there, that's all good, but what if you got a, what if there's a fire in the building? You need to skedaddle. After all is settled, we'll share the fund 3.2 million, 50% equally, or rather invest on whatever we choose. So I would really like to know what you have to say in regards to my proposal. Thanks, Mr. Israel Barney. Oh, Israel, I'm in. I'm in, and I think we should invest it. I'm not sure what. Maybe a pony farm. I've always wanted a pony. Let me look, I've always wanted to make money off ponies. I don't like them personally, but they seem like a cash cow. Maybe cows. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Nito. And he writes about his depression. When I get home from work and time I get home from work and time turns to mud. I get a snack and fall straight into bed, and my bones turn to stone. I am a fossil, and time whirls by as I lie still and wait to be found. Boy, is that fucking dead on. Oh, my bones turn to stone. When you're depressed, does anything compare to bed? About his ADD, I make to-do lists. I lose them. I make to-do lists. I lose them. I make to-do lists. I find an old one. I didn't do anything on it. Crap. I make a to-do list. It's great. About his love addiction, I do free work for my ex. I don't think we're getting back together, but there's been a hole in my life since we broke up. And since no one else has filled it, it's still shaped like her. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this person calls himself broken farted. And then in parentheses, not a typo. I did not think that that was a typo. Uh, He asks, if you could have anyone in history on as a guest, who would it be? That is such a great question. And honestly, I think... I'm assuming he was a real person, Uh, Jesus. And I would be like, dude, we got a lot to clarify. Let's go through some of this literature page by page, and you can give me the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And then we can see people uh, react as assholes on Facebook, and the world be more torn apart. This is from the love survey filled out by only as crazy as most people. And they write, I love those rare occasions where my girlfriend appears in the slightest appears the slightest bit jealous or possessive because she's normally so free spirited and totally secure. It makes me feel like I'm dating a human and validates my own jealousy and the other undesirable things I work so hard to downplay. It's exhausting pretending that you're as healthy as your partner. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, do I love that one. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself scrambled eggs and toast. She identifies as asexual. She's in her 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, Growing up, I was passed around to different babysitters while my single mother was off at work. One of my caregivers led the rosary in the sanctuary of the town's Catholic church sometimes, and since I wasn't technically Catholic or understood what the rosary about was about, she left me in a side room that had some toys in it. I could hear them go through the rosary as I found a puzzle and sat down. A guy with a collar came Colleron came up to me, seeing I was by myself, started talking to me sweetly, sat next to me, and the hand he put on my knee slowly creeped up under my underwear. He put his fingers over my lips and told me everything would be all right, as his other fingers entered me down there, and all the time I heard the rosary. Even to this day, strangely, the rosary makes me kind of horny because of this sick thing that happened. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Anytime I ever thought about killing myself, I only fantasize that I will do it via autoerotic asphyxiation. Darkest secrets. The main videos I go to on YouTube more than anything are erotic hypnosis slash binaural beats slash isochronic tones slash succubus and incubus invocations. It's the only way I can climax an orgasm, and it feels so good. I go back and again, again and again, to the point I lose hours a day of them sometimes, then promptly clear my watch and search history. Ha ha. Also, I'm still a virgin. True, that might not sound deep and dark or a secret, but people have always assumed I was a slutty whore in high school and that I had lots of sex, but nope. But I like them thinking I did, so it's still my biggest secret. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I kind of mentioned them already, the rosary, succubus, inv- invocations, etc. But having sex with a partner or a snake are pretty powerful to me also. And that, that was the end of uh, her survey. Thank you for filling that out. And I'm sorry you had to experience that, but thank you for sharing about that common relationship between trauma and sexual turn-on and uh, how, how we don't get to choose it. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by You Couldn't Write It. And she writes, I was seeing my therapist for sex addiction for about six months when he told me I was strong, that I didn't need therapy. In that moment, I realized he really sucked at his job. It never dawned on me half an hour beforehand when he was fucking me like an animal. wow, of course he told you you didn't need therapy. He, he couldn't handle the guilt of being a fucking predator and having sex with his client. I'm glad you could see, though, how fucked up that was. You know, I've talked to people whose therapists cross the line with them and, you know... And they were confused about whether or not it was a wrong thing, which it clearly is. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself world's worst sandwich. I did have the world's worst sandwich about three weeks ago. It. I would rather have somebody just taken a shaker of salt and just jammed it in my face and, and poured it down my throat. I could have saved $15. Can you talk about your experiences with guests who follow up to make edits to their interview or wish to retract their answers or even the whole interview after the interview takes place? I may be wrong, but I would assume people contact you afterwards to modify something they shared on the podcast, and I'm curious about how you navigate that challenge with them. Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. And before I record, uh, I always tell my guests I will be happy to edit anything out or even shelve the entire episode if you like. Sometimes I will uh, suggest uh, edits or trim them for for time. Um, and I have had people uh, ask me to take down their episode because you know they're looking for a job and they Google their name and the first thing that comes up is their episode talking about something that they don't want to be uh, public. So yeah, sometimes we use pseudonyms. Um, and sometimes I will I will edit stuff out per their request, but uh, I I would never put something leave something in that somebody didn't want left in. This is from the fears survey filled out by Pinky Swear, and she writes the state of the world terrifies me. About 10 years ago, my aunt, who grew up in Hungary and was persecuted by the Nazis, said the world is much worse than that time. I was shocked and confused. Thank goodness she's passed on, as the current state of our earth is terrifying me. I'm worried about COVID, obviously. War, food, money, my health, that people are losing their minds and common sense, and especially what we as people are doing to Mother Nature. My anxiety and fear of what we will become has me hiding away in my home, distancing myself from others, and I feel numb. Can we please start a new city where people are kind and nice, care about the environment and others? No violence, no racism, no misogyny, no hate. Please, I need to live there now. Boy, I think so many people feel the exact same way and I would like to throw my name in the hat to be the mayor of this town of whom I would hate being mayor of a town you know support groups are the closest thing I've found to what you describe. you know the, the people in there certainly aren't perfect and you get some people who are sick in there but you get a lot of people who are really in touch with love and responsibility and they're compassionate and they're caring and that to me is my refuge in the in the crazy that and detaching from the news and social media those those things absolutely help me. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey and uh, a woman who calls herself Awfulsome will be my child's middle name, uh, asks, I've been puzzled by you apologizing for reading dark surveys. Are there actually people messaging you, complaining to you about this? I feel like people who love the show wouldn't mind, but would actually be attracted to the dark stuff. Um, yeah, I do worry about that sometimes because I do get people emailing me. Um And mostly they ask for for trigger warnings, but, you know, the the entire show could be a trigger warning. Uh, So the only time I really preface something is when it's really graphic and dark. And so I had this survey uh, that I had decided not to read a while back, and uh, it's extremely graphic and dark. And uh, your survey inspired me to go ahead and read it. So anybody who's triggered by uh, sex abuse, um, this is very, very graphic. Um, It is filled out by a woman who calls herself, I just want a dab. Uh, She would now be 19 because his survey is from a couple of years ago she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it She writes, my ex-boyfriend violently raped me multiple times over the year I was with him. I first got together with him when I was 15 and he was 16. The first time happened was my first time having anal sex. I agreed to try it, but almost immediately told him to stop because it hurt so fucking bad. I gestured for him to stop and then tried to get up, but he just pulled me back and his dick went all the way up inside me. I just remember being in so much pain and going limp and afterwards when I had to take a bath because I was bleeding. He sat there telling me how I tried to crawl away and he was very happy. The worst time was when he anally fisted me without my consent. He had mentioned it a couple of times and I made it very clear I had no interest in doing this beforehand. We were having sex and he was behind me and he just did it out of nowhere. We were in front of a mirror so I watched this happen to myself when he forced his fist up me, I tried to crawl onto the counter to get away, but he just pulled me back and held me up with his fist in my asshole. I remember involuntarily gasping help during and told him no. When he removed his hand, it was completely covered in blood down past his wrist a bit. Afterward, he was beaming and he kept saying that I should have seen my face over and over. Another time, we were having anal sex, and some shit got on his dick, and he forced me to suck it off. One year ago, the last time he raped me, after the worst fight we ever had, he took me and bent me over and told me that if I moved or made a sound, I would never see him again. I complied because I loved him. Through the support of my friends and family, I decided to make a police report through my school. After I gave my interview to the detective, she told me that she needed more probable cause to arrest him, and one of the ways she could attain this was through me making a monitored call to him to try to get him to incriminate himself. I was terrified, but we got exactly what we needed. The next day, I went to the courthouse to get an order of protection against my rapist, and the day after he was arrested in the front office at school. He confessed to the detective and in his interview he said that he fisted me because he was angry at me for going to my male friend's birthday party. She has been physically and emotionally abused. My rapist was also extremely controlling and manipulative. Over time, he convinced me that he was part of the Russian mob and that they were keeping tabs on me and reporting back to him. I had to ask him permission for everything, from hanging out with a friend to going on to to my balcony to smoke a cigarette. I lost so many friends and missed out on so many opportunities because of this. For example, my dad got me tickets to a music festival in L.A. where one of my favorite bands was playing for my 16th birthday. But my rapist didn't want me to go and repeatedly threatened me, my parents, and my cats until I gave in to him. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Yes, many. My rapist is a textbook psychopath, friendly, well-liked, and charming on the outside. He came into my life when I was heartbroken from being dumped by a previous boyfriend, and he told me everything I felt I needed to hear. In fact, the first four months of our relationship was spotless. I hate to say it, but I had a lot of fun with him sometimes. I was head over heels in love with him. He just made me feel so special and loved. I wanted his approval and I did so many things for him. And I have always been into submission, masochism, and ravishment fantasies. Since my rapist is a psychopathic sexual sadist, he was able to bring my most extreme fantasies to life. I feel a lot of painful, confusing cognitive dissonance. When I think about the fact that the person who violently raped me is also the same person I had some of my best, most exciting sex with, when it was consensual, of course. He was my boyfriend. Darkest thoughts. I often wonder if it would be much easier if I just cut off all contact with everyone and lived as a recluse. I don't like talking or being around people very much. I've always been a big introvert and my tastes have always been on the morbid side. I don't mean to sound full of myself, but if I wasn't physically attractive, I'm sure I would have been completely cast aside as an outcast and considered a freak. I don't have social anxiety, I'm just not driven to make meaningless conversation with everyone, especially if I have something I need to get done. I have had clinical depression ever since childhood and was in therapy and on meds at the age of nine, and I've had some awful things happen to me, so I can't relate to the majority of my peers anyways." darkest secrets. I consented to and encouraged having my rapist carve his initials into my ass with a knife. Thankfully, the scar is small and faint now. I also asked him to give me a black eye and consented to letting him beat my face until one of my cheeks was black and blue. Thank God for makeup. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I still occasionally fantasize about some of the consensual sex I had with my rapist. I think I may be innately sexually attracted to psychopathic, dangerous personalities. I've always been interested in learning about serial killers, and I've even fantasized about them in my past. Sometimes I feel like my sexual interests invalidate my rape. It's hard even for me to understand. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would thank my rapist for showing me what love isn't. Wow. That is... That is a profound statement. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to know what it feels like to be genuinely happy. I'm not sure if I've ever been, at least not since I was very young. Have you shared these things with others? I feel the most comfortable sharing my feelings with my best friend. She's the only person who I feel is on my same level, so I've shared with her most of these things. I share my feelings to an extent with my boyfriend, who is also depressed, but he is an Aspie, so it's hard to communicate with him sometimes. He knows generally what happened with my ex. I've talked to him about being raped, and I'm open about it. But still, I feel like if I shared with him the darker parts of what happened to me and the thoughts it has left me with, he would get very uncomfortable and it would be too much for him. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm having a crappy week, but I feel a bit better sharing these things with you. Writing has always been somewhat cathartic for me. Thank you so, so 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 much for going so deep with that, and uh, I'm so glad that you have opened up to somebody about this, and that you've discovered the the catharsis of of writing. And um, I'm so sorry all of that stuff happened to you. That is so awful. That is so awful. And yeah, I've always. Been perplexed by you know the flood of love, love letters that serial killers get in in jail, and I've always wondered what what is that, and uh, I I wonder you know if it's similar to what you talked about that falling for sadistic people. I I, I always wonder too if there's a, a, a component of um, being a love avoidant because that person isn't totally accessible, you know. They're they're stuck in jail. So there's there's that invisible boundary, or i suppose mm-hmm. visible boundary. Anyway, these are some loves filled out by advanced case of chronic pathos. And they write, I love swinging on a swing set and closing my eyes and imagining that the swing set is 100 feet long, suspended between two skyscrapers, and it really feels like it is. Try this next time you get on a swing set. I love digging in soil and repotting plants outdoors in bright sunlight when the smell of moist soil and tomato leaves and my sweat and the sunlight all blend together in a warm breeze. I love when I can notice that state as you fall asleep, when conscious thoughts transition into visual dreams and my thoughts and imaginations come alive like a movie. I love the moment of relief when I have the hiccups and they finally stop. That's a great one. I love flowers and how alien and beautiful and strange they are. When I look at flowers, I realize how boring most other things look. So many things are just lumpy squares with bumps all over them. Flowers are like sexy fractals, fractal-inverted, spiral, triple whorls of wonderfulness, each as unique and perfect as the next. I love how meditating has taught me how to let go of thoughts without avoiding them. It's like a real superpower. I love knowing that one day the universe will end, be it through entropic heat, death, or vacuum decay, and time and space and physics themselves will no longer exist or be so changed that they bear no resemblance to what they are. Time itself is a temporary phenomenon, which boggles my mind and makes me realize that eventually problems will no longer be problems. That might seem dark, but to me, it sounds quite restful. Wow, those were amazing, and I'm going to venture a guess that you did better on your SATs than I did. Holy shit. Sexy fractal inverted spiral triple worlds of wonderfulness. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for, for listening and being a part of the podcast and filling out the surveys. And um, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are